Hello, good morning. I asked him, whoa, unmute me, I'm hot. He's hot on the mic today. Yes. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, glad to be in the house of the Lord. Yes. Well, I hope you've been paying attention. There's lots and lots of stuff going on here. Robin and I are doing everything we can to keep you guys on the... Uh, did you notice there was new floor when you walked in? Is that, are you not even in the state of mind that you... That paver that has been part of that front lobby since 1952 or 6? <laughs> All I know is every time it rains, we have to put seven floor mats out there. And sure enough, someone will walk in and that paver, as beautiful as a paver is, it's just not very water friendly. And so we were able to redo the foyer, whether you saw that or not, thank you. I mean, there happens to be a men's lavender, like a washing station in there. I mean, you didn't notice that either? That's not really where it goes. We're not going to the bathroom in here and then washing our hands out there. It's not the new design. But, I mean, we got a bunch of stuff going on. And believe it or not, this sanctuary may have a little something-something in the mix here. And you don't know what's going to happen, but it's possible a lot of things were possible. Uh, we also were able to uh, redo the um, kitchenette and the bathroom in the back that had some serious plumbing issues, serious uh, not happy. You know, the building's 75 years old. In case you guys, uh, the building across the street, 1948 on the original. Um, they built the youth room in like 52, sanctuary 52, 56, and then the admin building about 58. And if you guys notice, the front of the admin building is also peeled apart right now, too. Those beams, those beautiful wooden beams. Turns out there's this a creature that lives in the area. I'm not even going to mention his name. It's not even worth mentioning publicly. Besides a mosquito, the only other creature that God allowed to be created. When the, when the Lord comes again, I really hope he takes termites and sticks them down below or something. Because they're just, they're just a devastatingly destructive, good-for-nothing, beautiful, wood-eating Nothing. So we just saw a little bit of damage. We thought, no big deal. Oh, it's, it's a really big deal. And uh, then I hope you notice all the yellow stickers that the city's been out spending time with us. And we're just being blessed. I, I made the mistake of blessing a neighbor publicly and talking about how beautiful our relationship was. Within 12 hours of that public statement, the alligator then snapped back. And Pastor Jeff paid a severe price for that. So I will humble myself in front of the Lord and say, hey, we probably have between the youth room, we also redid all the sound. Uh, Pastor Bill helped us with that. We have an entirely new sound system in the youth room, so we can make it joyful now to really bless the neighborhood. And we plan on Wednesday nights bringing it. And the youth band is actually starting to get pretty proficient, so we might be able to bless you guys here in the near future with an actual ensemble of youth students. So we're just trying to keep as many things in motion as possible. Um, we also have an electrical project we're working on in the family, uh, family room, faith cafe, whatever you're used to calling it. So if you could just keep us in mind and keep praying for us as we kind of get it all. Also, the parking lot is also going to be repaved, and that alone will probably break someone's mind with all the different projects. You know, if, also for some reason, if you have a giant pile of cash sitting around, and you're like, I don't know what to do. What, why did the Lord give me this giant pile of cash? Please feel free to donate it to any one of the projects because some of them have stayed in budget and they're happy and others have not. But God is blessed and all things considered. Uh, it's not really something we kind of beg for or ask for around here. God has really been a very proficient in maintaining the church. But I would feel obliged to at least offer that to you. There is a tremendous amount of stuff happening. We are the gatekeepers of something that we could not repurchase. Trust me, in this town... This week alone, two other churches met with me and asked me, I mean, just to try to rent a building in the town is becoming a major to-do, and it's far more difficult to even try to accommodate somebody because they come in their own equipment and all the other things. It just doesn't even really work out, but we're really blessed to have what we have, and we couldn't redo it. So we're going to keep trying to keep it upkeeped so that the next 75 years, this place can continue to do and be that blessing that God would have it to be. Now, we are in the incredible account of Acts chapter 9 today, and for those of you that have been with us in this journey, Acts chapter 9 is the culmination of everything that's incredible about a single act of salvation. Now, the Bible records many different incredible acts. A lot of different people have had incredible experiences, but this particular salvation, this particular account of a gentleman whose sole purpose it is 
to persecute believers. He actually has the authority and the power of the church of the time to go and do whatever he deems appropriate, but he has this incredible zeal. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is a nice way of saying, whatever I need to do to protect my Judaism and my faith, I have the full power and authority of the high priest to do it, and he has no problem in going into a house or going into a building or going into any situation where he sees these Christians, these followers of the way, and going in there and taking them right out from whatever they're doing, prosecuting them, putting them before an administrative judge, and, and having them be persecuted for blasphemy, even to be put to death. It's that kind of zeal which makes Paul, is actually still Saul at this time, Saul infamous in the Bible. So this particular account is pretty incredible. I also want to just take a moment before we get into the passage to acknowledge something that happened last week. You know, this, the idea that Josh shared with you guys this incredible salvation opportunity with this young kid that he had, he was running with, and the kid was going through some depression, and Josh decided that God was putting it on his heart to share, but he didn't kind of, you know, get the situation to get that handled, and the young man took his life. I just want you guys to know, like, that so affected me for the week thinking about how many times as a pastor and how many times as a church we want to embrace the incredible story. Like today I'm going to tell you one of the most incredible stories ever about a salvation. But for, for me to not, to not recognize what that was, that was brave. That was brave to tell you guys something that God put on his heart to say, hey, just because you have an opportunity to share, if you don't and you miss that opportunity to share, that young man's life is not on Josh. But Josh now wears that as a badge, right? He now wears that as an opportunity to think, Every day I wake up, every day I have an opportunity to share my faith. Someone's life and death could be in the midst of that. And I just thought that that was something really important in case you missed that last week, just how valuable that was. I mean, in ministry 30, 35 years, very rarely will someone stand up in public and invoke something that they did that didn't work out for the glory, right? You want to share the stuff that's great, but to share something that really ran amok about a salvation opportunity or a chance to share God's name is also just as encouraging to me because that's what makes him. That's what gives him that character and that same zeal we're going to talk about that Paul has today to put Christians down. I feel like that's the same zeal that our Josh has when he now shares the faith with you that he has and what God's calling him to. So I also want to take one brief moment too. There was a quite a few people that came up last week and said they want to commit themselves to being more bold about following Christ. I just want to let you know too from the back of the room as I prayed for you last week and kind of made note of the people that came up, there's nothing more encouraging to a church, to a staff, and to leadership than to see God's people respond. I want to encourage you that anytime you take the opportunity to respond to God's word and say, I'm in. I want, to, I want to step my game up. I want to do more for God. I want to go ahead and speak to my neighbors about it. Be prepared for the enemy to attack. Remember I told you if you're building a runway, right, be prepared for the first attack to come on your runway. As soon as they see the planes coming in and out of your base and they realize you're starting to operate, the enemy is going to come in and attack you. So with all that in mind, let me prep and pray this morning, and we will open our Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Father God, it's been... Another beautiful week of seeing your handwork, and that handwork, Father, was, it was displayed in so many different things. There were, there were things that just went beautifully and happened the way they were supposed to, um, and it was a total joy. And there was other things in this week, Father, that just were a reminder that in this world and in this life, you will have trials and you will have tribulations. But the joy that comes in the morning, the joy that comes to a follower of Christ, Father, is that we realize that we can consider it all joy, that even the trials of this world, Father, the trials of not being there for someone who so desperately needs the hope of Jesus Christ doesn't break us. It doesn't make us. But in fact, Father, it gives us the encouragement that we need to remind ourselves that every day, every day there's a life and death struggle. And every day there's probably someone in our midst, someone in our sphere of influence, that oikos, Father, that's around us, that needs to hear the encouragement that comes from the good news of Jesus Christ. And I can't help but think what Josh said. Maybe we're just overthinking it. Maybe we're just overdoing it. But how about, do you go to church? Do you think about God? Do you believe in God? Can I pray for you? Just keep it simple and trust, Father, that you're working. If there's anyone listening this morning or even someone here this morning, that Father, that brought something in from the outside that's attempting to bring them away, to drag them down from who you are and what you say is important, Father, I pray that you would bless them with this word this morning, that you would take time from heaven 
to speak to the person on earth at that time that represented the single greatest opposition to faith and that you reached out and said, why do you persecute me? Father, thank you for the morning and everything it represents. We do it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. All right, let's get to some fun facts here. So we are going to be reading Acts uh, 9, 1 through 9 is the conversion of Saul. Uh, Saul is going to change his name back to Paul eventually. He's going to go from what I call the persecutor to the proclamator. And uh, if you were here last week, you know that it all starts with the opportunity to share. And unfortunately, when it comes to the opportunity to share, being a statistic guy, I wanted to look up some stuff. Lifeway is a pretty well-known company. Um, they have some very proficient stats, and I wanted to say, what is the most current stats on Christian evangelism? The ones I found were from 2016, and basically this is what I discovered. Of 100% of people considered, considering themselves Jesus followers, 30% consider themselves devoted to sharing their faith. 30%. Of that 30%, only 10% or less will actually walk some through to faith. 10% of the 30% that are committed to sharing their faith, only 10% will actually, so that would be like leading someone in a prayer of salvation or actually helping someone make a decision of faith. Of that remaining fact, 30% say they're not practicing their faith at all. 30% say they're practicing, and of that 30% practicing, only 10% will walk someone through. 30% just say, you know what, we don't practice our faith. It's really interesting what practicing your faith is. Is going to church on Sunday, serving in a church and tithing, which, by the way, is what we considered membership. And that also reminds me that I'm almost done with the membership class, which has been almost three years since we've had a membership class. I'm almost done with that, and I hope next week to make an announcement about that. So if you're interested in membership at the church or just you've been new in the last three or four years and you wondered, you guys even have that? Yes, we do. And I will hopefully get an uh, announcement for you for next week. I'll have Ken give that to you. You can turn it, mark your connection card, and we'll do something after church maybe next month, okay? Of that remaining thing, uh, 40% is what's left. And this is what 40% said. They do not know how to share their faith. 30% say practicing. Of the 30% practicing, 10 will lead someone to the Lord. 30% say, you know what, I don't really even practice. Practicing equals attending church, volunteering in church, service, and tithing in church. That's membership. That's the actual practicing of your faith. And 40% says, when it comes to even sharing my faith, I do not know how to do it. So when Josh said to you last week he had the opportunity to share his faith, and he didn't know what to say, but he, he said maybe something as simple as like, do you go to church? Can I pray for you? How are you doing? Anything. I want to encourage you that if you haven't had a chance, this is part of the reason why our baptism class is such an important thing, that the first time that you get a chance to invoke the name of Jesus, the first time you get a chance to publicly proclaim to your oikos, to your world, that you love Jesus Christ, that baptism will be a very significant thing. Matter of fact, other than your wedding, I always tell everyone, which your wedding is a public display of affection of love, your baptism is one of the most important things because in that evoking of your testimony, you have to get ownership of who you are and where you came, where you came from, right? Can you imagine Saul's testimony? I mean, that testimony is unique to you and no one can refute it. So once you have a grasp of what your testimony actually is, you want to have ownership of that because then that will help you with your defense. The Bible makes it very clear, church, that we are to always be prepared for the defense of our faith, okay? Approved workmen are not ashamed. They, for you want a family, as you know that, right? Have this ability to know what you believe and why you believe it. And part of that will come in your testimony. So part of the reason why we love our baptism class as we want to make sure people have that information. Because of that, the statistics are interesting because it says of the, if 100 people were standing in front of you, that 47% of those unchurched people in front of you said, if you discussed faith with them, they would respond. 47% said, if someone discussed it with them, they would respond. Of the hundred people standing in front of you, if someone said, if someone brings up faith in any com component, can I pray for you? Do you believe in God? Do you go to church? T only 10% said they would instantly change the subject. So let's make some things really clear about what this passage is about. Salvation, each one of your salvations is a miracle from God. The fact that God would reach out from heaven, send his spirit to us, touch us on the shoulder, touch us on the heart, and we would wake up to the fact that we're living a life that's in total opposition to God. 
Okay? There's none righteous, not one. And yet in that opposition to God, God meets us, the Spirit touches us, and we realize there's a, there's a different way than the way that we're living. In that different way, we repent, we change 180 degrees, and we walk towards God. We embrace the fact that the Savior wants us. And because of this opportunity, now what we're going to see in this salvation is you can ask someone or see someone who's living their life right now in total opposition to God completely differently than you currently do. And I think this is going to be really important to you because I have a feeling when the church comes, when it comes to asking the church to invite people to church or to help the church grow or do different things about church growth, we often want to see people that already kind of look like us and act like us. But what this passage is going to teach us is that's not necessarily how God looks at it. God looks at every single person as value, and God says every single person has an opportunity to come to me, and this conversion of Saul is going to speak absolutely incredibly to this. So I'm going to read. Um, I'm reading NASB today. So Justin, I'm doing NASB today, and I will do 9, 1 through 19, and then we'll break it all apart. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him from the synagogue in Damascus, and he found if any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. And he was traveling when it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And there for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus, a man named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas from a man of Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man and much harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has the authority from the chief priests to arrest all on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name to the Gentiles and to the kings and to the sons of Israel. For I will show him much, for he has suffered much on behalf of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands upon him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like fish scales fell from his eyes, and he began to regain his sight. He got up, he was baptized, he took food, and he was strengthened. Now, why is Saul breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord if he feels like He's in control of the situation, and that Judaism is everything it's supposed to be. Why is Saul so aggravated from the very beginning? And I think one of the things that you can see in this is the reason why he's so frustrated is because the more he's persecuting, the more he continues to chasten these people, the more they kind of spread out. And as they continue to spread out, guess what's happening? They grow. So this is a really important insight for us just to realize that when we are chastened by the other side, when, when the devil says that, you know, whatever you're doing right now has got my attention, let me bring some frustration to you, rather than us being frustrated, we should realize something. Anytime the Lord pushes us out of our comfort zone, one of the beautiful things about that, especially when pastors like all things working together, is that the, the faith that we have is now going out. And so what he's realizing as these followers are moving out and belief is starting to spread. It's not starting to die out. It's starting to spread. Matter of fact, it's spreading from town to town and it's moving from north to south. And so this is motivating Saul to get up and to get out and to go to these places where it's really kind of popping and going off and saying, I'm going to go put my stamp on it right there. I also find it very interesting that when the church first started, that a phrase like the way would be something that's associated with them. I've always thought that'd be a cool name for a church. You know, churches always have these unique names. But if you think about it, Jesus said in John 14, right, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So if you started a church and it went well, you could be the way, you could be the first church. 
right? And if you kept growing, you could have the next church you had be the truth, right? And your sister church could be the life, and you could be like, Trent, it's too much. I'm, I'm losing it. You guys don't think like that. I don't know. I just feel like men spend so much time trying to be creative, and sometimes God's word just says things so simple. It's just like, church, we're, we're part of the way. We, we've been part of the way from the, from the very beginning. Matter of fact, the ichthus, which is the fish, you know, the little fish you used to see with the I-X-O-Y-T back in the day, that was actually put in caves. They found that in caves all throughout Jerusalem. In any area that held water, they would put the ichthus on the walls of the caves so that when you came in there and you felt an ichthus, it would tell you that this cave was used for baptism, that this was a cave where those people, those followers of the way would come. From the very beginning, God's kind of been putting it out there. If you want to know where the way is, if you want to know what the truth is, you want to know what life is, it's been out there. Why? One goal in mind, okay, so that the word of God would go out. And so Paul is absolutely saying, as Saul, whatever I have to do to put them in shackles and bring them back to Jerusalem where they can be put to death is my responsibility. Now, I don't think there's anyone in the Bible that's more fervent about bringing a follower of Christ to death than this guy. I mean, he's, he's maniacal. I was actually trying to think of it like a modern-day kind of version of someone, someone who's so intimidating, as we're going to find out later on, even in his blind, incapacitated state, he still brings fear to the person that God tries to send to him. Paul says, you know what, here's the situation. As long as you're sharing with other people, my hostility will continue to grow. And I don't know what happened with that Stephen guy, and I know something happened with him, but so far all I can tell you is this. You people, you followers of the way, you're you're everything that's bad about what I believe, and so I'm going to commit myself to your complete and utter destruction. You know, I mentioned that, you know, that's whatever happened with Stephen. But the reality is the way that Stephen died and the words that Stephen said and the way that he continued to show love, even as the hostility was being shown toward him, it greatly affected Saul. And I'm sure that as part of this conversion, when he's spending some time in Damascus in this room by himself, that the very things that he has seen and probably heard are all going to come flooding back to him. I want to keep moving in the passage now. Let's move to verses 3 and 4. It was interesting to me that it says in verse 3, he was traveling in the middle of the day when a light from heaven flashed around him and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul. I don't know about you, but when's the last time you saw a light flashing around you at noon, right? This is a very interesting situation to claim that a light was flashing around you. I'm kind of thinking, well, maybe it was like lightning or something like that, something so dramatic. But whatever it was, it was significant enough that everyone around there was kind of involved in the situation. But the way that it affected Saul was very personal. Uh, I just, I can't help but kind of jump in front of myself. I mean, the fact that the Lord is going to reach out in such a way, it, it tells us, by the way, the Lord, I'm not just guessing, that Jesus himself is going to reach out to the single most bent person on the planet Earth to destroy his followers. And not just destroy his followers, but persecute them, put them in shackles, and put them in front of a magistrate and kind of just demoralize them. The fact that Jesus is going to show such compassion and such attention in this one person. Yeah, it seems pretty strong about the account, but the reality is within the book of Acts, three separate times his conversion on the road to Damascus, he's going to talk about it, and he gives complete additional insight every single time. We actually find out in Acts 26, 14, that when he fell to the ground, he actually heard Jesus speak to him in his own language, in Aramaic. I just can't help but think about, like, Jesus is in heaven, and here's this guy who's on the road with the authority, all the regulations he needs. He's going to go and destroy people, and you've decided not only to reach out to him, but stop and speak to him. You know, other than maybe Moses, there's not a lot of people in the Bible that have had this kind of privilege to have God in the high, right, speak to you. But he's going out of his way to speak to this guy. Now, this is mind-boggling to me. How many of us, when we see somebody today that looks like they're in complete opposition to Christianity, all right, let's say we saw Charles Manson cruising by us or somebody who was you know, openly involved in the occult or some kind of satanic, whatever it was that was like openly in opposition to God, how many of us find ourselves even mildly thinking about what you could say or do for that person, right? The first thing we're thinking is go left, right? Or go right. Like, get out of the way of that person, I've actually had some times where I've been in a police car and I've seen someone walking down the street and I'm praying for people because I see them kind of talking to themselves and I know they're kind of in that state where they're vulnerable and I've had people walking down the street while I'm praying and I've looked up at them and I'm praying and I'm, I've seen them turn towards the car and continue to speak. 
right? If you don't know that you're in opposition with the sides, if Ephesians 6 doesn't make sense to you that we wrestle not with those things, things, but of principalities and dark and light, I can't help but think about Saul, is, he's tapped into what he believes is the absolute truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But the reality is in verse 5 when Saul says, who are you, Lord? Is that not shocking to you? Like, if you're going to kill people in the name of the Lord, shouldn't you be sure that the Lord is in it? I mean, wouldn't that make sense? I'm doing this on behalf of the Lord. If the crusaders didn't actually understand what they were thinking, would it have made any sense for them to go to the promised land and all these different places and on behalf of the Lord kill people on behalf of someone they didn't know? But not only do we know that he doesn't know him, when the Lord speaks to him, he doesn't recognize the voice. Now, I have a very interesting thing when it comes to names. Uh, I like names. I like to know people's names. And, I, and I'm pretty sure as I look around this morning, I think I know all of your names. But I would also challenge you this, that if I had a chance to just sit here and you walked up and I heard you speak, maybe a couple of you I don't know. I see a couple, two or three faces. Fabulous to have you this morning. But I would also know your voice, right? Isn't that tell us something about the people that we're akin to, that we know we have a relationship, that not only do I know your face, but I know your voice. And that helps me have a feel for you because some of you know me well enough and you look at me today and you're like, hey, what's up, right? Just from as soon as I say two words, you know what's up by the way I talk. We're talking about a guy who's the Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he, he's telling everybody, I am the absolute most zealous person on the planet Earth for this God that I follow, to the point that I'm happy to kill all of you followers of the way, perfectly good with me, to protect Judaism. I'm glad to do that. And yet here's his boss speaking to him and calling him out. And his response is, who are you? Church, this is another overwhelming point for me, and I'll make this point too for you, for you keeping track of things. There are people in life right now that you know that are 100% convinced that what they believe is 100% right. And you know what? They're 100% wrong. Okay? If you don't know that the God that you believe in, if you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that who you believe in, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, then that's part of the reason why you're continuing to struggle when it comes to evangelizing the lost world around you. Because this man could not be any more convinced that what he was doing was imperative and significant for the very God that he thought he followed. And yet when that God not only spoke to him, but calls him out of all the billions of people, millions of people, he calls him out individually and says, why are you doing this to me? His response was, who are you? Right? There's an interesting component about how this whole thing works. See, we, we've heard it before, and this is one of the things about the Bible. It sounds so repetitive, but God looks on the inside. We're struggling so much as a church and as a people group because we get so caught up with the facade of what we see, right? We see this perfect Facebook family. We see this person who perfectly posts. We hear this person who perfectly speaks. And then we instantly build this kind of persona behind it about how everything is. But that's not how God sees. He sees straight to the heart. And he cuts straight to the heart with this Saul guy. And he says, you, Saul, are persecuting me. You don't even know what you're doing. So I'm going to speak to you in a way that makes sense to you. Why are you persecuting me? He thinks he's persecuting followers of the way. He has no connection to persecuting God at all. And God says, no, you're persecuting me. Because God sees the inside. Saul says, what should I do? Well, you're about to find out what you need to do, Saul. You need to stand down and listen to the Lord. From verse 7, I also just found it interesting that when they all fall to the ground, we find out later they all fall to the ground, only Saul hears, but even though the other guys hear, they don't see, none of the other guys could speak. Zero, right? Church, when, when the world that we live in right now, you said, man, I can't wait for justice to happen. I can't wait for retribution to happen. I can't wait for people who really deserve what... When you come to the presence of the Lord, when you ultimately stand in front of the presence of the Lord, you can be assured of one thing. No one's going to have anything to say about anything, right? When you stand in front of the presence of the Lord, even in your unknowing state, you have nothing to say in front of the King of Kings. And he has all of them be still. Why? So that Saul can hear this voice clearly. What's the Hebrew of Hebrews going to do now? He's completely blind. He's completely incapacitated. He's going to attempt to get up. Verses 8 and 9 tells us why he's still on the ground. He opened his eyes, but now he can see nothing. 
And now he's led by his hand to Damascus, where for three days he'll be blind and will not eat. Blind being led by others. Wow, I tell you what, you want to talk about a humble 101 class being sent to? Okay, He came with all the authority and all the power to go down there and show those people who was boss. And now he's being led by the hand, right? Any of you been sick enough or in an incapacitated state where someone has to lead you? Did you feel very strong about yourself in that state? Did you feel very confident about who you were? Or was your whole world kind of crumbling around you going, wow, I mean, on behalf of people who are sick, myself included, anytime you fall apart and you're crumbling and you need someone to lead you to a bed or lead you to a chair, the last thing you're thinking about is how strong and powerful you are. Instead, you're thinking about just how weak and broken and quickly that can turn, right? And that's what this guy, this Charles Manson of his day, who was just bent on putting every single person he could in as much power and authority as possible, and now he's nothing but a crippled, blind man being led away, and he's going to fast for three days. By the way, three days fast is a very typical fast for a Jewish person. It allows yourself to be considerate of the fact that God has done something or is doing something. And so it openly was the process for repentance. So if you were going to do something and you did it for three days, it's, it's basically your way of taking it and saying, okay, I don't know what's going on, but I'll sit and wait upon the Lord for him to answer. And I think that's so important because once again, character counts with the Lord. Now this man's character is against the Lord, but think about what that's going to mean if the Lord can turn him, right? Think about what that's going to mean if the Lord can give him that same kind of zeal for the Lord. And he's showing that character in this thing. He's saying, I'm just going to stand down and I'm going to wait. And then verses 10 to 14 tells us, the Lord called in a vision to this gentleman named Ananias and he answered and the Lord tells him to go and talk to him. And all of a sudden this man's thinking, even in his incapacitated state, I know what this guy can do. I'm not interested in going there because he has authority from the high priest to do whatever it is. Now, Ananias is an interesting name. Um, there's a bunch of different Ananiases in the book, but I just want to clarify. This is not Ananias from Ananias and Sapphira. This is not them, right? Because he's no longer here right? He had a problem with his wife and the Lord took him home. So it's not him. This is not Ananias the high priest because that wouldn't make any sense, right? Because he's a devout individual. So this is just Ananias, the guy that's available when the Lord calls, okay? And he gets the task of being called when, I said Charles Manson, that might be a little strong, but maybe Hitler. I mean, Saul is the most powerful guy on the planet earth at the time. I mean, Saul is ominous, okay? His ability to do whatever he wants to do to you is going to be authorized. And Ananias is just a simple follower of Christ who's being called in in this vision to go speak the truth to him. And his mind is saying, you know, even in his incapacitated state, when I pray for him to receive sight, what happens when he opens his eyes and realizes I'm a Jew who's, you know, been sent by Jesus, the one who's persecuting him, to pray for him? What happens if he falls back into his ways? He would then have all the authority in the world to see me, grab me, and that would be problematic. It's an interesting concern that we have that when God calls us to do something, our response often to God is, but what if, right? God calls us into these awkward, horrible, horrific situations that look like they're way beyond our pay grade, but you know that God's calling you in, and you know that God is asking you to do it, and you think, but this is so beyond my scope. This is so beyond what I understand. So what if I go and something happens, and we try to rationalize with God? Are you sure you want me to go? Church, not only does he want Ananias to go, but he wants Ananias to know something. This guy that you're about to pray for when this guy cuts loose, remember when I told you to bring it to the ends of the earth? This is the guy that's going to do it. This guy who hates me, this guy who hates you, is going to love me so much and is going to be so committed to it that this guy will literally walk my name to the ends of the earth. And wherever he goes, including his birthright, he's a Roman citizen, the very things that I have given him, everything about all those different capacities, I will use to build the kingdom of God through this man. So Ananias says in verse 16, okay, this is your chosen instrument. I will go and to the Gentiles and the kings, the people of Israel, and I will show him that he must suffer my name. So Jesus reveals in Ananias that this guy, this commissioned man, would be the one who brings it to the ends of the earth. Saul is going to have a name change. Like I said, Saul will become Paul. 
He will then become a follower of Christ, and then the very man who was once pursuing everyone will now begin a new life where he is now going to be pursued by other people. He is now going to be the one chastened by other Jews. And everything that he once did to believers will now be scheduled to be done to him. And not just in a small way, but uh, in some of these passages you read, you'll find out it's going to happen to him in a monumental way. He will be imprisoned, beaten, lashed, stoned multiple times, shipwrecked, snake-bitten three different times, and eventually the church says martyred for his faith. So everything that he could possibly do to the church is going to be done to him. That was from Corinthians 11, by the way, the, the list of everything that he was asked to, be, to, to go through. But Paul's going to learn something. He's going to have a new perspective. Now he can write to the church. He's going to actually write to church. Now I can rejoice in my sufferings for you. Oh, man, this is so, uh, so mind-boggling that this 130 miles north of Jerusalem in basically the small little slice of nothing that God is going to so powerfully move in one person's life that eternity, that, that so much of eternity will be affected. How much? Paul, Saul becoming Paul, he's going to write 13 of the 27 New Testament books. Um, a lot of people would still give him credit for Hebrews, too, so depending on how you see. But basically, almost half of the New Testament from one individual. When it comes to understanding the value of one individual, the take, you taking the time to bring the truth of God to one individual, I think something like this should be great motivation to you. That neighbor that's constantly been irritating you, that family member that you've tried so many times and it hasn't worked out. Think about what one person of God truly being unleashed can mean, right? It doesn't have to look like what every other believer looks like. It can actually look like something that's in total opposition to what you would see as a believer. Because that's okay, because God sees people on the inside, and everyone has a value to God, okay? Jesus didn't die for some. He died for the whole world. His father has lots of room in his mansion, right? There's lots of room for us to be with the Lord. There's not just, you know, 50 chairs available at the table, if you think about that, when Ananias goes to the house and prays for this man, when he puts his hand on this man's head and says, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road is now coming to you, that you may see again and be filled with his Holy Spirit. I can only imagine in his mind what he's actually thinking if his eyes open and what he might actually say. Would he even have any possible comprehension about what this man would become, what this man would say, what this man would do, Instead, when Paul recovers, one of the first things it says that he does is he takes three years to begin prepping himself to begin to go out. So here's another great first sign for us. Uh, some people come to the Lord and want to know what they do. I mean, begin the studying, begin the preparation. If you truly want to see what the Lord can do in your life and you're making a profession of faith, get ready for the battle. Prepare yourself. Because Saul's going to take the same kind of idea that he took towards persecuting, he's now going to take in proclaiming. He's going to have the same kind of tenacity he came in, in putting someone down. He's going to have that same tenacity to chase someone, to share with them, and show them the truth. And as Paul begins his letter-writing campaign, I think it starts about maybe A.D. 51 to Ephesus, and then 52 to Thessalonica, Thessalonians, and then 55 to Corinth. As he begins writing to these churches, as he begins informing them, the three years that he took to prepare, you could literally see Paul, Saul, as the very first Christian theologian. Now, a theologian for me is kind of def defining, it'd just be someone who's an expert in theology. Like he took the time and the due diligence and all the different things he didn't understand this time to understand and in that total devotion to that understanding, he's not only able to write to these people, but he's able to educate them. Now, this is a great encouragement, too, for us, church. Sometimes we, we were so excited about sharing with other people, we have to remember, the goal isn't just to share. It's to share and show and invite other people into that path, right? Uh, you want to know how, how much you know, see how much you can share with someone else, right? If you have a hard time sharing with someone else, you may want to work on your apologetic, right? The idea that I know this, but I have a hard time communicating it to you might tell me, maybe back off of the learning and all that stuff, get deeper in the understanding, right? I'd rather you know a little bit about Jesus deep than a lot of bit about Jesus shallow, Right? Because we have to go share that with someone else. So for some people, they're like, oh, I'm going to read, 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 and watch, watch, watch. 
it's okay. Maybe just read a book in the Bible and really spend time learning to hear from God's word and supplicating on God's word. And that's what he does. So as he writes to these churches, they're not only hearing God's word, but they're the very books that we now use to teach God's word, right? To teach theology. Such an incredible thing that a, a gentleman that was so against it is now such an encouragement to it. Let me get to the final verses here, 18 and 19. In his uh, situation now and asking the Lord to move, it says something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So eyesight, here's a really interesting component. Eyesight has always represented throughout history this idea of understanding, right? If I ask, do you see what I'm saying? And you respond, yeah, I see what you're saying. What you're saying is I understand, but yet, if you think about throughout the Bible, this whole journey for the Jews with Jesus is they were, they were with him and near him, but they never seemed to understand. And then I found this passage in Isaiah, and I think this kind of helped me understand. If you haven't, this is Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Tell me this doesn't explain the situation perfectly for people seeing Jesus and hearing Jesus, but not understanding he said, go and tell the people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of the people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. It's almost like this same thing that happened to Saul has happened to the Jewish people. It's almost like it's been there the whole time, yet it's been locked away from them. But there's this interesting relationship with him that if you seek God, if you, if you ask Jesus to speak, then the very person you seek to work against can reveal himself to you in a whole new way, that he is the Messiah. Well, you've often heard me say about Messianic Jews, a, a modern-day follower of Judaism that actually makes a profession of faith is a very small percentage, maybe 1% to 3%. So what is Jesus going to do with those 97% of people still walking the earth right now that don't realize that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, church, I can tell you exactly what he's going to do. One day when I believe the church will no longer be here, he's going to turn 97% of the Jewish people into Saul's, and he's going to cut them loose. And with the same tenacity that someone once worked against God, in that particular time and place where I don't believe the church will be part of that, it's going to be a very difficult time. But those people who have been calloused and hardened by the very world they've lived in will have the same tenacity to go and share the word of God with the world that will so desperately need it. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not happening. Just because it, we don't believe it and we're stubborn doesn't mean that God's not going to finish what he said. You know, Saul was educated at the feet of Gamil. He was, he was educated in all the different things that should have told him and given him the truth, and yet he still couldn't understand it. He had a zeal for the Mosaic law. He was, he was haunted by these people that were ruining his beautiful Judaism. So to execute someone who was against that, it was a beautiful thing for him. He, feel, he felt his violence and even his rage against these people was completely substantiated in God, and yet Jesus didn't turn his back against him. If you have somebody out there today that's in your world and they've kind of turned their back against Jesus and you're thinking, you know what, I'm just going to leave them to their own regard because that's between them and Jesus. That is true. And everyone will stand accountable. But just because they've turned their back and made it personal with God does not mean that Jesus makes it personal with them. He never turns his back on them. And he always has time, even in the middle of the day, to rain down a lightning storm and say, hey, why are you persecuting me? The end result will simply be this. Will they yield? When the Lord calls, will they yield? Okay? Saul was willing to yield and take three days to stand down to see what the Lord had to say. And because of that, one of the first things that came to mind is when he came to and he needed rest, he was baptized. What does that show? Well, one of the things in baptism class we love to talk about is being baptized shows that you're moving from milk to maturity. Right? For you to stand in front of a public body of believers and profess Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is one of the first opportunities that you get to show that the milk that I once lived on, I'm now moving to my first solid food. And I'm going to share with people publicly my faith in Christ. He's showing he has a newfound commitment for his faith. 
being baptized for him would have meant he would have been completely disowned by all of his Jewish family. That would have been the absolute severing of any relationship. And what does it do? It strengthens his resolve. He eats a little bit of food. I mean, sometimes when it comes to faith, we need to just keep it simple. Sometimes what we need is just a little bit of food. We need a little bit of rest and we need a little bit of food because doing the work of God is tedious. How many of you have ever provided counsel for someone in the midst of a storm? Just counsel. And sometimes that counsel is not even a lot of words. Sometimes it's just counsel to let them, you know, kind of just process everything that they're going through. And all you did was sit and listen. And as soon as they walk out of the room, what's your, your first response? Exhaustion. Right? Because we're laboring and we're fighting and we're trying to help somebody see that what we're trying to do. And I love the simplistic nature of this. This guy is about to be the most prolific evangelist in the Bible. He is literally going to do more for the faith than any other recorded person. The single greatest opposer of the faith is now going to be the single greatest proponent of faith. And it starts by just standing down, waiting, trusting God, getting something to eat, and then following in baptism. I don't know about you, but one of the things I definitely got from Josh last week, and that I think God has definitely given me too, is where are the people who have zeal for the faith? I know there's a lot of people right now who have zeal for lots of worldly things. There's people who have zeal for politics. Some of you may know someone like that. I mean, they just, if you have any time to talk about anything political, zeal, just fervency, and just almost exuberant to talk about it, right? There's people that love cars. I enjoy cars. I have an Avalon. That's as good as it's ever going to get for me. And every time I drive by a nice performance car, I look at my wife and she says, no. It's not nice. It's not nice. I said, honey, could I rent one and drive down PCH? Same answer, no. Why? Because I know how fast you drive your Avalon. Yeah, but that, if I rented that exotic German car, it's designed to go that fast, right? That means it's safer. No. No. I don't even know what I was talking about anymore. I started talking about cars and I, was, I got really excited. Zealous. I'm a zealous person. I'm also zealous of my wife, right? I don't want no one around my wife. I don't have any intentions of sharing my wife with anything, right? But what happens if we made the consideration of this, that where's our zealousness for the Lord? Josh had a young person, running tra-la-la in life, and this person was so despondent that after that conversation, he took his life. By the way, Josh is not the only person following the Lord to speak to someone and have them take their life. It happened to me my third year in ministry with my best friend. He, he called, cried, complained about losing his job, and I told him that no matter what, I would be with him, but I'd never heard him cry before. He began to cry, and then he became frustrated that night and took his life the following morning. He left a really horrible letter for everyone that was left calling us out. And that was the first time I got a chance to hear Romans 8 given at a funeral, and there's no condemnation for those in Christ, and realize we can all be, zeal we can all be zealous for a lot of different things in life and be really 100% zealous about it and feel like it's a really good commitment. But where's our zealousness for people dying and going to hell? Politics have been a problem for a long time. I have a feeling that politics will be a problem until the Lord returns. Amen or amen? amen? Okay. All of our little wants, wishes, and desires, and nuances of the things that we like and we don't like, okay. Grace, right? But when it comes to like a single call for us as a church to stand on, I'm getting ready to have communion in a couple minutes here. Church, I just want to give you one final thought. This guy wrote this in the last thing he wrote. There's only one thing important for me about living. It's Christ. For me, death would be a prophet. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty worthwhile. 
You know, we're always looking for that new thing. We're always looking for that something, a new bumper sticker for the back of our car. We're always looking for the next great thing. Playing golf with my son yesterday and my brother and not feeling well and just enjoying the day. And I just realized, I think I'd rather be with people I love and just enjoying life than a lot of different things in life. Like just enjoying the simplicity of life. And the guy that we were playing golf with was telling me how lucky he was to have retired. He was quite a bit younger than me, and I was sad telling him I'm never going to retire. Um, I said, so what'd you do to be so lucky? I was a day trader 10 years ago when a friend of mine offered me Tesla stocks for $22 a piece. And I happened to have some extra money, and I bought a ton of them. I sat on them for 10 years, and when they divided at $21.50 a piece, I sold them. And I thought, he's playing golf by himself. He never talked about his wife. He never talked about his family. He was a good golfer, but I felt like, you know what? I was 10 times richer than he was, and I had my ATM in the car, and that's it, and a pack of gum. I have no stocks. I have no retirement, but I have a zeal for the Lord that makes me realize one thing. Tomorrow may or may not be a good day, but today in the house of the Lord, if you're here hearing how much does God love us, God's son reached out from heaven in the middle of the day to stop the number one opponent on the planet earth at the time and reach out and offer him a different way. And he took it and he ran with it. And he became so proficient at what he did that it's a reminder to us that guys, the single greatest gift we can give the world is salvation. The single greatest calling in your life is salvation. It's not your sickness. It's not your affiliation with the religious organization. It's not your denomination. It's none of those things. It's your association with the King of Kings and his ability to take someone who's in direct opposition to him and change their lives. Because all of you represent that, right? You represent a changed life. You were in opposition to God at one time too, and now you're not. And so as we get ready to take communion and I ask the band to come back up here, I want you to just think about the last thing this guy said. The only thing important to me, Philippians 1-2, the only thing important to me about living is Christ. Because when I die, it will be gain. It's been appointed for you to be born. It's been appointed for you to die. It's going to happen. The in-between, one thing's for sure, Stephen made it perfectly clear, that in the in-between, there's a lot of life that we have to live. But even in death, Stephen showed the world around him there was a way that he could die that was different than how everyone else died. And so he did. And he let his life pass in such a way that he evoked the same words that Jesus spoke. Literally, changed the order, but he evoked the same words that Jesus spoke and just took the chance that his life would not be in vain. And Saul was there. Matter of fact, from how we read the story, we believe that Saul condoned it. It was Saul's killing that put Stephen, the first Christian, to be martyred down. But it wasn't for nothing. And it wasn't for nothing anyways because the word of God got in and Saul became ready. And on the road to Damascus, the Lord reached out and spoke truth to him and he received it. Father God, this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we prepare our hearts to remind ourselves that Maybe there's some people in our lives that don't look like what we think Christianity should look like. Maybe there's some people in our lives that we think they probably wouldn't appreciate the good news that Jesus says. We've come up with a lot of different excuses and reasons why, like Ananias, we've been sent to go tell them. Why we've been sent to go tell them that the shackles will fall off your face the day you realize that the very person that you think you're working for, you're working against. And there's a love and a hope and a grace that comes from you, Father, that when people receive that, their lives change. That's literally what repentance means, to do a 180. Father, I pray this morning that if there's anyone hearing this message, if there's anyone in this building, especially in light of getting ready to take you in in communion, Father, that they would take in the encouragement that comes every single time we do this. We are going to do this in remembrance of you. And we're going to do this remembering that you said it will happen and that you will return one day. And we, one day, as a full body of Christ, will take this communion together. Father, thank you for the opportunity, like Saul, to bring our broken 
disgusting, sin-filled lives and simply set them at your feet and rest in that and think that somehow, some way, that you can do something amazing with it. Each one of us represents an amazing thing done and a continuance of your truth. Be with us this morning as we stand before you to do it all in the name above all names, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. For communion, and if you could, please come to the right and please come to the left and come forward and get your elements at this time. team gets their elements if you could just take a moment look at this simple little piece of bread not much in the scope of true hunger had to offer the Lord was smaller than this we would think not much yet that's not how he says it he says if what you offered me was the size of a mustard seed but pure it would be a lot and so I encourage you church 
your communion element might be smaller or bigger, but it has no indication on what it's actually representing to you as a follower of Christ. What it represents is every time we do this, whether it's once a month, once a week, some churches do it every Sunday, but every time we do this and we put this in our mouth, we remind ourselves that until he returns, he is our strength. He is our portion. He is our encouragement. And he's sufficient. He said, take and eat this. And do this in remembrance of me. And after the bread, he grabbed the cup. It probably wasn't fancy like this one. It was probably simple. Everything I, th I think I know about my Lord is simple. He had what he needed. He could have had a lot more. He had the resources to have everything. And yet I think he would have basked in the simple. I've often asked myself, if the Lord returned on a Sunday in Costa Mesa, where would he go? And I think I know the answer. Wherever the need is the greatest. My need is great. I don't know if your need is great. I need the Lord to show up daily. I need the Lord to remind myself that my strength is struggling. But his is never fading. When you pick this cup up, you remind yourself the shed blood of Christ was a huge cost. The cross is that reminder. But you're not taking this for nothing. You're taking this for everything. And your sins are now covered. And you, like Saul, have been given a new name and a new hope to take that truth that you have. You, I don't know much. If you know a little bit, you still know more than the world. Take that seed and find some ground and throw it. Recklessly throw the seed of God wherever you can with every neighbor and every friend and every family member until there's no seeds left. And then pray, God of the harvest, send more seeds. Because church, for us to live is Christ. And if we die, so be it. Merv's waiting. John's waiting. The people we love are waiting for us. We got work to do until we get there. Take this cup in remembrance of me. Father God, this morning, I just pray that you would strengthen the church. I pray that every and any believer in here or even listening online would just realize something. There's none righteous. Nobody in here has it dialed in. Nobody's figured it out. We're all struggling to be worthy of the cross of Christ. And we need to pick that cross up daily. And we need to live in a way, Father, that the light that's in us can then come out into this dark world around us. May we live in such a way, Father, that for us to live is Christ. May we even die in such a way that like Stephen, Father, those people around us would be greatly affected even in passing. And if there's anyone in this building today, Father, that doesn't know that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that he willingly, no one took anything from him, he willingly gave his life for us, then I pray that today would be the day of reckoning. Thank you for the opportunity to call ourselves followers of the way. Help us this week to go out and evangelize boldly with the zeal of Saul so that the kingdom of God can increase. Father, we do it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.
about possibly helping us emptying this church. We would love it if you would come up here and we're going to organize who's going to do what to get this place cleared out for our new carpeting. Thank you. Have a great week. God bless God you. God bless everybody. See you next week. Thank you.